0: Philosophy is about the study of knowledge, or how thinking works. It can be applied to the study of many other disciplines, like law, linguistics, and even science. Our Sound of Science team had a chance to visit the Rotman Institute of Philosophy, where we spoke with researchers pushing the frontiers of our philosophical understanding in neuroscience and physics.
1: Hello, and welcome to The Sound of Science, a radio show that invites students, faculty, and community members of London and the greater world to join us on a quest to explore a question about our world by hearing from Western University researchers and professors. My name is Max, and joining me is Mike, and we are your hosts for this episode. Joining
0: us in studio is also Andre, who is the research mind behind this show and all our previous shows. He's the one who helps us bring science research into an accessible form, which we're sharing with you today. This time, we investigated a different type of scientist, one that studies the philosophical implications of various scientific discoveries.
1: Joining us this time is a philosopher who has studied Isaac Newton's approach to the scientific method. He's written extensively on the development of gravitational and cosmological theories and walks through the fascinating process by which Newton has come up with some of his most powerful theories.
0: But first, we'll hear from a neuroscientist who stumbled upon quite an odd phenomenon. He and his team discovered that parts of the brain can be recruited for multiple functions, like how fingers can touch and feel things, as well as help with counting. It turns out that this supports a theory in philosophy called embodied cognition, where our body seems to affect our thinking.
1: We join Dr. Michael Anderson now at the Rotman Institute to chat about his research. We are joined now by Dr. Michael Anderson, Professor at Western University and Rotman Canada Research Chair in Philosophy of Science. His research is located at the intersection of psychology, neuroscience, computer science, and the philosophy of cognitive science. His most recent book, After Phrenology, Neural Reuse, and the Interactive Brain, outlines a novel framework for understanding the overall functional organization of the brain, places its function in evolutionary context, and demonstrates how mechanisms originally evolved for the support of sensory-motor coordination have been co-opted to facilitate language and mathematics. Welcome, Dr. Anderson, to our radio show, Sound of Science.
2: Thank you very much. Appreciate the time.
0: All right, so let's get started. So I was looking a bit into your work, and I heard about this concept of neural reuse. And usually when we think of the brain, we think of um, you know different parts, different lobes doing certain things, and specialization. So this sounds quite different than what we're used to. Can you talk a bit more about that and explain how the brain might accomplish this?
2: Sure, yeah. Both in the popular imagination and, and of course, some scientists also continue to uh, believe that this is the case, that individual bits of the brain are specialized for one thing and one thing only. Um, The evidence, however, is not, I think, pointing in quite that direction. So let me tell you uh, just uh, at the outset what the kinds of things I do empirically. So my work um, is not experimental, primarily. It's more computational. And what I've been doing over the past several years is gathering up many, many, many different uh, neuroimaging studies, right? studies that look at what parts of the brain are active under what circumstances, uh, what psychological circumstances, and building a very large database of those and then looking for patterns of activation across many, many, many different studies. When you look one study at a time, it does indeed look as if individual parts of the brain are specialized for one thing, because you don't get all the brain active um, for a particular uh, psychological task. You get very particular regions of the brain active, and consistently, often across people and across time. And so you might infer from that, ah, well, we've got a collection of specialized modules. When, however, you look at the brain across hundreds or thousands of studies, what you see is the same regions active across multiple different tasks, and sometimes very different tasks. So somatosensory things and mathematical things. And that's a really interesting um, uh, uh, observation. And uh, the way I think, what I think explains it is this principle of neural reuse that you've mentioned. Neural reuse is the idea that Um, as a way of making very efficient use of of very metabolically expensive brain tissue, uh, the brain organizes and reorganizes itself uh, over time as you learn to do new skills and and new tasks by taking the same parts of the brain that were active in something you learned in the past and uh, incorporating the same piece into different networks for different purposes. So what you have is uh, differences in cognitive function being more a matter of differences in network architecture rather than which parts of the brain, individual parts of the brain, are active under a given circumstance.
1: So when a part of the brain is reused, is it reused for a function of similar purpose or a completely different cognitive domain?
2: I would say that's still an open question. Uh, Certainly in some cases, we seem to have evidence that it's being used not necessarily for a similar psychological function, but in a similar way. So, for instance, I mentioned um, uh, there's a piece of, um, uh, of the brain that's involved in what's called finger gnosis, which is just your sensory awareness of your fingers, and also in mathematical tasks. And those are quite different things, you might think. Um, but what we think is that maybe what's going on there is that particular part of the brain implements a computational structure called an array of pointers, So basically just a kind of storage mechanism that turns out to be useful for both keeping track of your fingers and for keeping track of uh, mathematic numbers. That's one possibility. Uh, I think it's also possible that um, pieces of the brain end up doing very different things under different circumstances because of the way that the pieces of the brain interact with one another and constrain one another's uh, activities. Uh, We don't have a lot of empirical evidence for that. Uh, at the moment, just because it's very hard to know what parts of the brain are actually doing at this point.
0: And so it seems almost like development plays a role here, since um, you know, initially when we're uh, when we're first born, I suppose uh, our somatosensory cortex with the finger region sensation uh, might not be as familiar with the mathematical function. So perhaps this is something that you know is learned through time, through schooling and mathematical education.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I I, I came to this a particular piece of research uh, by, in, by uh, collaborating with actually a professor at, at King's College here, uh, Marcy Penner-Wilger, and uh, in her lab work, they found that um, uh, children's ability on the fingernails' tasks, right, their ability to sort of track their fingers, uh, varies considerably, and that it predicts mathematical achievement up to two years in, uh, in the future. So it's, there's definitely developmental uh, issues here.
0: And so we know also that the brain is a pretty metabolically expensive tissue to maintain, uses most of the energy in the body. So does this might does this have a relationship to the concept of neural reuse?
2: Yes, I think so. I, in my view, the reason that reuse is such an important developmental principle for uh, uh, generating brain architecture is because parts of the brain, right, the brain itself is so metabolically expensive. And so to make the most efficient use of that tissue, uh, uh, it makes sense to... Incorporate pieces of the brain in as many different functions as is possible without making everything a mess.
1: So, now we want to talk about what has been labeled a term called embodied cognition. A theory that says features of cognition, like concepts in our head, are shaped by aspects of our body, like how our motor system interacts with the environment. Could you tell us a little bit more about embodied cognition and how you came to discover this?
2: Right. So there's many different sort of takes on embodied cognition as sort of a big big tent idea. But yes, one of the basic tenets is the notion that uh, thinking, uh, cognition, it doesn't rely on the brain alone. But uh, the way you think and, and the things with which you think, to put it in a different way, um, uh, cross the brain-body-environment barrier. So here, in a simple idea... The notion take take doing long division. Most of us don't do it in our heads. Most of us, in fact, can't do that in our heads. There are people who can. Um, So what do we do? Well, we get a piece of paper out and we write it down, and then we go stepwise through the algorithm that we know will give us to the answer. And the idea here is the idea, at least from the perspective of embodied cognition. The idea here is that the cognitive system that's solving that problem is not the brain, it's not in the brain alone, right? It's in the world as well. It involves the hands, it involves motor skills, uh, and it involves the algorithm and the steps and the piece of paper, and it's that whole extended system uh, that is the cognitive system that is doing the work. So
0: does this have a relationship to neural reuse?
2: Well, I think so, because it looks to me, at least by analogy, that something similar is happening when the brain reorganizes itself, finding the right pieces to fit together to do the job it needs to do, and when we, um, are humans, figure out how to do complex things by by, by creating a, a, a extended cognitive system using parts of our brain, parts of our body, and parts of the world. So the the thought is at least one one way of thinking about this is you've got a, a a common principle of organization. How does it you build cognitive systems that applies as, expl- as being explanatory at the neural level, uh, at the genetic level also, by the way, um, and, but also at the macro level.
0: And so does the concept of embodied cognition have anything to do with evolution
2: as well? Yeah, I, I think so. The, here again, if the theory is right that um, uh, this principle of reuse... Uh, emerged in evolutionary time because it was an efficient way of marshaling resources, something like that same logic might apply to the, right, the animal level of organization. Right? How do you marshal what resources you have in the world, in your body, in your uh, nervous system to solve the problems of surviving um, and socializing and, and all the things that have to happen um, uh, for a species to thrive?
0: So still on the topic of neural reuse, um, maybe I'm a bit skeptical still of this. Um, so I know, you know, like uh, Penfield, who um, activated different areas of the brain, electrically simulated, kind of demonstrated um, that certain areas are responsible for certain things. And um, this is something that neurosurgeons do as well when they're operating on a patient. So like, what's the time frame for neural reuse? How, um, how can it be that um, these kind of tr- tried and true concepts that work? Right now, um, is your research consistent kind of with with, uh, other research in this area as well?
2: Sort of yes and no. So um, I mentioned already that when you do one study at a time and you're looking for some one particular thing, uh, then it's easy to convince yourself that you found the one function that a piece of the brain participates in. So you're electrically stimulating. You're looking for the motor responsiveness in an animal, Uh, And indeed, you see that when you stimulate up here, the fingers twitch. And when you stimulate in a different area, it's an elbow movement, for instance, or your toes or what have you. And you think, ah, we've got this somatotopic organization of the motor system. And each part is specialized for controlling one part of the body. Um, When you look, however, across multiple studies, looking for different things, you'll find that parts of the motor system are also involved in language comprehension, right? Parts of the motor system are involved in, uh, in action planning, even abstract action planning. So uh, we have to keep in mind that theories of the brain, theories of things as complicated as the brain, this is a general principle as well, but theories of things as complicated as the brain really need to wait for all the evidence, or at least more evidence, or evidence across multiple kinds of studies and multiple kinds of trials. So focusing in in on one, even classic case, uh, like the the Penfield homunculus, um, uh, I, I think that's too narrow an evidence base. Uh, for coming to conclusions about brain function.
0: So it's almost like there's quite a lot of emergence in the brain and you, you have to look at the system as a bunch of complicated parts.
2: Yeah, the brain is dynamically reorganized itself minute by minute. Different parts of the brain are, are cooperating in different patterns. As you do one thing and then switch tasks and do a different thing, you get a reorganization of what's called functional connectivity, that is the, a measure of, of, of what is connected to what in order to support a particular uh, particular function. Uh, and you can you can track this um, in, in neuroimaging studies uh, over time.
1: Now to look more broadly at your role in examining neuroscience topics with a philosophical approach. Do you feel like neuroscience lends itself to philosophical studies? And can you tell our listeners more about why you enjoy your research topic?
2: Absolutely. There are a couple of different uh, ways in which neuroscience and, and philosophy sort of productively interact. One is in a field called the philosophy of neuroscience, um, and that's primarily concerned with understanding how neuroscience works as a discipline. What's the evidence? What kinds of inferences are uh, compatible with the evidence? What, kinds of, what styles of thinking um, you, you might want to apply to different kinds of, of neuroscientific evidence? How is it that we um, can bring together evidence from very different kinds of studies into one coherent picture of the brain? How does that work? So topics like that, you know, that's sort of the philosophy of neuroscience. There's also a field called neurophilosophy. Uh, And neurophilosophy sort of stands that on its head. Neurophilosophy asks questions about how findings in neuroscience can help us directly address philosophical questions. So um... There's a subfield called Neuroethics that looks at the way the brain responds to, say, moral dilemmas, and that might tell us something about moral reasoning, which is something obviously that philosophers are quite interested in. Um, there's also issues of say consciousness uh, that's a uh, very much studied here at Western. There's a very uh, active group uh, uh, right below us here at in the, uh, rotman, uh, below the rotman Institute in the in the Brain and Mind Institute that asks, how the study of the brain can help us better understand what consciousness is, what different kinds of conscious states there might be. Uh, so those are just a couple examples of the, of the kinds of things with, that uh, allow for this productive interaction between what ostensibly could be two very different fields.
0: And so what are the applications you see for this research? Might it be able to be applied in a clinical setting?
2: Yes, I think, I think the, as pure science goes, uh, this is going to help us understand how the brain organizes itself, how that organization changes over time, uh, what are the mechanisms that allow that to happen. And as we come to better understand that, that absolutely would, well, will, in fact, I think, have clinical applications. Um, even already now, there are some groups who are interested in um, developmental uh, neural disorders uh, and also uh, uh, post. Uh, brain injury recovery that are using some of the basic ideas of neural reuse to design better therapies um, uh, to, to help patients uh, like that.
1: All right. Thank you very much, Dr. Anderson, for your time with us today.
2: You bet. Thanks for coming by.
0: You just heard Dr. Michael Anderson, Professor and Tier 1 Canada Research Chair at the Rotman Institute, who shared with us how his research into neural reuse relates to the topic of embodied cognition.
1: A few doors down the hall at the Rotman Institute, we spoke with Dr. William Harper, who studies evidence in science, game theory, and Kant's empirical realism. He joins us to talk about his research into Newton's process of scientific discovery.
0: Today, joining us on The Sound of Science is Professor William Harper, Professor Emeritus at the Department of Philosophy at Western University and a member of the Rotman Institute of Philosophy. In his research, Professor Harper explores how scientific theories are formed on the basis of available evidence and which philosophical approaches scientists can use to arrive to their conclusions. Over the years, Professor Harper has published multiple works in the philosophy of science, taught philosophy of science, and logic courses at Western and from 2002 until 2005, served as the president of the Canadian Society for History and Philosophy of Science. In 2011, Professor Harper published a book exploring the philosophical methodology of Isaac Newton and the method by which Newton has created his gravitational and cosmological theory. It is a great pleasure and an honour to have you on the show, Professor Harper.
3: Well, thank you. I'm delighted to be here.
0: Okay, so we'll get started right away with our first question. So our first question is, what exactly is the hypothetical deductive method, and how would one apply it to available evidence?
3: On the hypothetical deductive method, uh, the theory is treated as a hypothesis to be tested. Successful prediction gives uh, confirmation to the hypothesis. If the observations or data turn out to be incompatible with the theory, then that requires that gives grounds for revision or perhaps rejection of the theory.
0: Generally, in which ways does Newton's methodology differ from this method?
3: So on this hypothetical deductive method, empirical success is just accurate prediction. Newton's uh, methodology uses provisional acceptance of background assumptions, the laws of motion and some others, to get systematic dependencies between phenomena, that's patterns in data, and uh, theoretical propositions that would be inferred.
0: For Newton's method, the notion of empirical success is crucial. What exactly is empirical success?
3: Uh, Well, there there are many different kinds. As I said, on the hypothetical reductive method, empirical success is accurate prediction. Uh, One sort of empirical success uh, that's central to what Newton does is to have the background assumptions allow the phenomena, the background assumptions to give you systematic dependencies that allow the phenomena to actually measure the theoretical parameters. Now, one example that I think is a useful one to get the idea is the moon test inference. So. After Newton had inverse square centripetal forces toward uh, Jupiter from the orbits of Jupiter's moons, Saturn from the orbits of Saturn's moons, and the sun from the uh, orbits of the planets, and the earth from a combination of pendulum experiments and the moon test. So the moon test is going to be the thing I'm looking at. So what he, in the moon test, He takes the centripetal acceleration exhibited by the lunar orbit. Now, this requires background assumptions and observations to get what the centripetal acceleration at the orbit would be. Then he increases that to get what it would be at the surface of the Earth. And he compares that value for that acceleration with what Huygens had measured using seconds pendulums. In fact, now, so you have... The agreement between these two measurements led led Newton to infer that the force that maintains the moon in its orbit is terrestrial gravity, our gravity. Moreover, this inference was accepted by Huygens and Leibniz and all these others who really worried and objected to Newton's more general theory. Uh, And one of the things it had was... That it changed, it added something to gravity. Was so if now people realized gravity varied inversely with the square of the distance, and this inference got all of that going. And it's an so it's it's an example of a of a theory mediated, meant it, uh, agree, a theory mediated measurements and agreement between measurements. So this is a second kind of empirical success. Now there's a long history. That was involved in uh, by Newton and, uh, and his successors over hundreds of years, uh, applying Newton's theory of gravity to our solar system, and th- that involved one of the things Newton did with measurements was he was able to measure the relative masses of the sun from the orbits of its planets, uh, uh, Jupiter from the orbits of its of its moons, the uh, Saturn from the orbits of its moons, uh, in our earth from these pendulum experiments in the orbit of our moon. And he realized that the sun is so much more massive than the planets that the center of gravity of the solar system is never gets very far outside of the surface of the sun. It does move the, and by the way, I can't resist, uh, a striking example of the methodology at work is using this methodology to apply it to what was the dominant question in uh, the 17th century uh, in, in, in science. Uh, it was called natural philosophy then. It was the question of, is it a sun-centered or an earth-centered solar system? Uh, these are, by the way, Galileo's famous dialogue, the two chief world systems, is based on that question. Newton's resolution gave a surprising answer. They're both wrong. Because the sun is, when the planets are more of them on one side than the other, the center of gravity is not the center of the sun. But because of the enormous mass of the sun, the sun-centered one is fairly close whereas an Earth-centered one would be hopeless. By the way, I can't resist this either. There's a... Uh, in Kepler's Astronomy and Nova, the new astronomy would be... The, uh, he has a diagram giving what would be the pattern of Mars from uh, an Earth-centered reference frame over several hundred years. And it's an enormously complicated pattern. Uh, and uh, so... Uh, the... Taking the sun-centered one gives you a good starting place to then look at deviations. So, they, in the uh, in the ephemeris, that's the program for predicting the motions of planets, the positions of planets in the solar system. Uh, you start with a two-body thing for each a, a planet and the sun, and then you so now you've got this. Keplerian ellipse, a two-body Kepler ellipse uh, say for Jupiter and now you look for deviations from the predicted locations that you would observe against the fixed stars Uh, and now you find some deviations and then you look for, using Newton's theory, you look for uh, for interactions, gravitational interactions you've been ignoring. And then you uh, try to uh, put, uh, you p- build those in, and that makes a more refined model. And now you look for more deviations again from that more refined model after you've got these. And you look for further interactions you've been ignoring. And you keep doing this over and over again. And what this involved, there's a, by the way, there's a wonderful book uh, by George Smith on this, uh, and you can also look up, his papers on the Stanford Archive uh, that uh, talks about over over and over again you're finding out new dependencies between features of orbits and how those features control what happens later in the orbit. And it was this enormous success at getting for these new learning these systematic dependencies I call these Newtonian causal dependencies that uh, afforded enormous uh, weight for Newton's theory and now I want to say something from Newton about Newton had uh, what's called his fourth rule of reason and propositions gathered from phenomena by induction uh, should be regarded as either exactly or very nearly true, notwithstanding any contrary hypotheses, until further phenomena make them either more exact or liable to exceptions. Now, uh, this, this sequences of empirical successes were raising the standard for Newton's theory for anything that would be, uh, could be an alternative would have to meet in order to not be dismissed as a mere rival hypothesis. And Einstein, you have all heard about, of course, the mercury perihelion. But one of the things that Einstein built in to his theory of gravity was to have uh, the static weak field limit, which is going to be something that makes sure it recovers all these things that Newton's theory had. So when he got... And again, I can't resist. One of the most exciting moments of Einstein's life, one of his biographers says it was perhaps the most exciting moment in his whole life, was when he applied, he, he didn't yet have his full field equation, he was ha- but he had approximations for what it would have to be for a spherical mass energy distribution like the sun. And he's applying that to Mercury. And he's getting the 43 seconds. That uh, And uh, now he was building in, with a static weak field limit, the others. By the way, there's another 531 seconds a century of Mercury's perihelion. So this is actually recovering. This is an example of general relativity recovering the dependencies.
0: Are you able to actually quickly describe what Mercury's perihelion is like? I don't think um, a lot of people may oh, understand that.
3: Okay. So uh, okay. think of an ellipse... With the force on a, to a focus, uh, now uh, if now you suppose you've got a planet at the aphelion is the is the is the, the the line going through the center of the ellipse, and the focus is on that line, and it's toward the nearer part to the uh, to the focus. That's the perihelion, the closest point. The aphelion is the farthest point. Now imagine you have a planet moving from the aphelion and to get back to the aphelion. If it goes exactly 360 degrees against, say, some fixed star, then that's zero precession. If it has to go more than 360 degrees, that's forward precession. And so in Mercury's case, it was precessing forward 43 seconds per century. And backwards precession, it's falling off. Uh, sorry, backwards precession would be uh, less than 360 degrees. By the way, now that we've got this, my most favorite Newton, Newton, Newtonian uh, inference is to f- go from absence of precession to the inverse square. Because he has systematic dependencies uh, that suppose, uh, if you have forward precession, if if you have zero precession and ellipse with force to the focus, it's exactly inverse square. If you've got forward precession, it's falling off faster than the inverse square. If you've got backwards precession, it's falling off slower than the inverse square. That's, by the way, my favorite example of theory-mediated measurement and, and this kind of a success.
0: In which ways does the modern account of gravitational phenomena in cosmology use the Newton methodology, and perhaps even exceed the standard of empirical success set by Newton?
3: Some years ago, uh, uh, Robert Kirshner, by the way, two of his students shared half of that Nobel Prize for dark energy. Uh, And uh, he had a book, I believe the book, the first edition, was published in uh, 91. Uh, And in 94, a fourth printing of the book came out, and it had an epilogue And in the epilogue, he talked about uh, how uh, somebody was giving a talk at Harvard-Smithsonian and was saying, I'm just going to assume a lambda-cold dark matter model. This was somebody talking about galaxy cannibalism when galaxies come. And, uh, uh, And nobody blinked. Nobody raised any objections. And Kirshner says he was sitting in the back thinking, five years ago, that would have been outrageous. Dark energy was something personally rejected by Einstein in the sense of lambda, the cosmos. So what changed? And the epilogue is what changed. Now, before I say that, I want to say what the model is. It's the model for large-scale cosmology today. It's a dust solution to Einstein's field equation, where the specks of dust are clusters of galaxies. So this is very, very large-scale. And now, at the uh, the mass energy here, uh, they're, they're, they're really, in this model, there are two kinds. There's o- what we'll call omega sub lambda, and that's this wild stuff, dark energy. And then the third, about 30%, is what we'll call omega m for ordinary mass energy. Now, that's also pretty. W- A little bit wild because that the the visible parts you've probably heard of the uh dark matter problem well the visible mass energy would count for 0.03 and so you got a lot of dark matter there too okay now that's the model and uh what kirschner now one of the Kushner's book was, by the way, about uh, supernova redshift and and the history of developing supernova redshift theory. And those two um, of his students that shared that Nobel Prize worked on one of those groups. The other half of the Nobel Prize was by the head of the other group, all working on supernova redshift. Now, the supernova redshift, so for certain kinds of supernova, you know what, you, the frequency should be, for the in for, for in in the in the halo as you're looking at the thing, and the redshift is that you know you know what the what it should be, and the redshift it shifted toward the red. That means it's moving away, and the faster it moves away, the more redshift it is. Now the really amazing thing about this—it's an accelerating expansion of space itself. The further ones are not only moving faster, but they're moving faster enough faster that it's like the rate is accelerating. The further ones are f- faster and faster and faster. Okay, that's a supernova redshift, and uh, then uh, what? Now those are giving you measurements of that of of that omega lambda. Now what you had was work that was done on galaxy clustering and those are giving you oh by the way oh i, I can't resist his uh Kirshner, when he starts talking about this uh talks about how they got rid of some problems in the supernova redshift and after you've read the book you read this and oh wow that's a lot better and uh he says nope wasn't just that and then he talks about the galaxy clustering. Now, that's stuff that's going in to focusing on the, uh, especially on the, uh, on the point three. And, uh, and, and, again, how that got better and how the two things are coming together to give agreeing measurements at the same place. And, uh, uh, and you read that, and he says, nope, wasn't that either, just that. Was the combination of those two, with it turned out the WMAP. This is the satellite at four times the lunar distance. It's mapping the whole background, and uh, the uh, WMAP uh, uh, microwave background measurements are giving you another measurement, and all three are coming together at that point. And this is a striking example of Newton's methodology at work. And by the way, this is raising the standard that any alternative say uh uh a uh, uh static model or uh there's a fellow at uh at uh in in Otago Autog- in in sorry in New Zealand uh who uh has uh pointed out that the supernova redshift me- you could think that we're in a bubble and and uh so wheelchairs theory, and uh, uh, so it would be possible to explain the supernova redshift without, without having this, this wildly expanding background, and, uh, but again, the standards, these agreeing measurements are raising the standards that allows you to just say, nope, too bad, just a mere hypothesis, so that would be Newton's methodology at work today in cosmology.
0: Okay, great. Thank you. Um, it was very interesting hearing all your insights into your research. Thank you very much for sharing with our audience. I just had one last question, though, prior to finishing. Um, so your research is in philosophy of science and you, um, your, most of your education background is in, within philosophy. Um, so how did you come to arrive at this interest in your life and begin doing research, I suppose?
3: I, uh, well, first, I went to Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute as an undergrad, and uh, for the first two years, everybody takes, th- so I, I had a lot of good basic physics, uh, and uh, I had a, you know, my, originally I started working on probability, and uh, I did my PhD on probability and uh, uh, r- belief change models, uh, but i was at a conference uh in uh a philosopher of science named clark glemore uh was working on uh ways of looking at scientific inference very positively and then he uh there was a, 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 a very another very famous philosopher of science Bas van Frossen who's an empiricist sort of and, and I would hear, they would go and give, Clark would give talks, and the two of them, and Boss would, one of the things that Boss would say over and over again is that the, uh, look, uh, the uh, he, appeal to a Bayesian model. So uh, the probability of a theory can never be higher than its deductive consequences. That's a standard thing about probability. If T implies E, then T's probability can never be higher than E's. It's usually lower. And Boss would say, look, I'm just being more careful than you guys. You're going accepting theory. I'm just being more cautious. Mm-hmm. And I started to think about Newton's unification of Huygens' work with pendulums and Kepler's work on the planets. And I realized there must be some notion of empirical success that isn't measured just by probability. And uh, because surely, if you just took, uh, say, Tycho Brahe developed a... uh, First, he had... the the best data that anybody had um, before this telescope this was and uh, he uh, but he developed a theory that's an Earth-centered system uh, that is much better than Ptolemy's in fact if you took say Kepler's theory of, of Mars and you put a or even of all the planets and then put uh, and take the, the well, just do it for Mars, take the Kepler orbit, then uh, take the same and put the reference frame instead of in the center of the sun, in the center of uh, uh, the Earth, that would give you a, ty- a, a, a Tychonic system. And for all the data that was available, uh, uh, all the observational data up until... Uh, the uh, mid-1800s where they first were starting to get uh, uh, solar redshift, sorry, not solar redshift, anyway, data data that could be, uh, aberration would be one, that's not the one I was thinking of, but aberration. Uh, And, uh, but now that you've got this, uh, you've got if you just took the conjunction of Kepler and uh, Galileo, mm-hmm. and you're getting the approximate truth of that from Newton's, if you just took that conjunction, then the absence of solar parallax might give you good grounds for resisting uh, going for the, uh, for, for the more complicated solar system. But once you've got Newton's theory there, surely then that gives you a stronger thing. And that started me going on this.
0: Thank you very much for joining us on the show, Dr. Harper. All
3: right. Thank you. I've enjoyed it very much.
1: You just heard from Dr. Harper speak about the hypothetico deductive method, which was employed by Newton to make some of his most impressive discoveries in cosmology and gravitation. This episode has taken us from the depths of the human brain to the physical principles that govern planetary motion, all from the perspective of philosophy. We hope that this episode has broadened your mind about the interdisciplinary nature of scientific understanding and encouraged you to learn more about the research going on at the Rotman Institute of Philosophy at Western University.
0: As always, thank you for joining us on another episode of Sound of Science. Our podcasts are aired live on Radio Western, 94.9 FM in London, Ontario, and they're also available to stream on our website at www.soundofsci.org, where we feature each of our interviews individually. Follow us on Facebook at Sound of Sci, and like usual, we hope that you can join us again in our conversation we like to call Sound of Science.